You are listening to a six-week teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled Visionary Love. This series addresses topics such as marriage, dating, sex, and singleness, and looks at Scripture's vision for thriving and loving relationships. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Hey, we are in our final installment of Visionary Love, and uh, the whole big idea here is not just about falling in love, right, because that's easy. All you need is the pulse to fall in love. And, uh, but the, the, the thing that we've been addressing is staying in love. How, what's the, and we want to just kind of lay out this vision uh, for what it looks like to pursue, what it looks like to date, the spills and thrills of marriage, sex, dating, those kinds of things. And today we're going to wrap it up. Um, and this was going to be a five-week series, but I have my friend Travis Aikland coming in town uh, next week. And I, wanted, uh, I didn't want you to miss out on the opportunity to hear from him. Travis leads one of uh, the newest edition of New Frontiers Church out in California. Actually getting ready to head on a plane after the service today uh, to go out and be out with him and, and others. And so he'll be here next week, and it'll be great. Make sure you're here. And so I'm going to wrap it up today. And I'm going to kind of put a couple messages in one and just kind of round this out by giving what Jesus talks about in the text we just read in, in the area of marriage, divorce, and singleness. And uh, the, the statistics around marriage and divorce are well known. Uh, they're, they're out there. We all know what they are, and they're, and they're depressing. Um, but you and I, we don't make decisions based on statistics because if we, if we did, we, well, we may not get married. Because, but we think we'll be the exception. And so this whole series, again, just talking about, okay, how do we do this right? Uh, you know, because we want to get to the designer of this. If you want to uh, handle something rightly, you, you need to pay attention to the designer. If you don't submit to the designer of something, it's going to be, so like if you pick up a gun and you don't submit to the designer and you point it in the wrong direction, you're going to shoot a hole in yourself. Same way you pick up marriage and you don't submit to the designer uh, of marriage, you're going you're gonna to shoot a hole in your marriage. And, and marriage is one of these debated topics. And, you know, the traditionalists, they want to stick their feet in the ground and say, hey, look, we need to kind of keep things the way they are. And reformers, they want to, they want to see things in their mind evolve and change. And so, you know, let's do prenups. Let's do short-term marriages, you know, three-year lease with an option to buy and like uh, timeshare children and all, and, and all these different things. And uh, this debate, though, has always been there because there's something about marriage that we just can't shake. There's something about marriage that's central uh, to civilization, that, that ma- there's marriage in every civilization. Uh, it's, it's something that's always been there because it's an institution that's not been put in there by man, but by God. God is the designer uh, of marriage. And so it, it's, it's here to stay. It'll always be there. It'll never move from us. And so we need to figure out what he has to say uh, about marriage. And it's so important that you know that it comes from God. I mean, I've been in counseling situations where I've kind of said, hey, look, you know, this is how you need to play out your marriage. This is how you need to relate to your, this is how God says you need to relate to your spouse. And they're like, hey, don't tell me what to do in my marriage. I'm like, hey, hold on a second here, buddy. I'm not saying that. This is God saying it. So if you don't like it, you know, talk to him. Secondly, it is, it is your marriage. This isn't, this isn't your invention. This isn't your creation. We have this thing about this, my marriage, my life, my body, whatever. The, the Bible is so clear that we have been bought with a price. Beloved is what Paul says very tenderly. This is a good thing, by the way. 
You've been bought with a price. It's not your own. And it's not a way of just saying, na 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 But this is like a way of saying, look, you need to understand some things about marriage. So what Jesus does very helpfully is he lays out the essence of marriage. And the essence of something is what it is at its core. What is marriage at its core? Um, what is anything? So if I was to say, if I was to ask you, what is a baseball player? And you said, well, a baseball player is someone who wears a uniform. Well, that's true, but that's not the essence of of a baseball player because, you know, football players wear uniforms, nurses wear uniforms, police officers, people in the army, other people wear uniforms. That's not the essence of a baseball player. Some say the essence of a, of a marriage is affection. It's, it's following your heart. It's, it's how you feel about someone. But, you know, dogs have affection. And I would argue they have deeper affection than most human beings because they'll, they'll die for you, right? So, Affection is a part of marriage, but it's not the essence of marriage. Some say it's procreation, right? That Well, rabbits procreate. Um, other animals procreate, but they don't have marriage. Procreation is a part of marriage, but it's not the essence of marriage. Some say it's tax deductions or shared, shared health care or whatever. These, this don't speak to the heart. So what does Jesus say uh, about the essence of marriage? Well, we read it in verse... Um, Five here, and he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is, it, it's going back to Genesis. So Jesus is going back to creation. He's going back to how this thing was designed, and it was leave, cleave, and become one flesh. Leave your, leave your life behind you, leave your family, leave your father, leave your mother, cleave to each other, become one. And this word cleaving literally means to make a covenant. And a covenant is a promise or a vow. And what's unique about that is a, it's a declaration of future love, not a declaration of present love. So those of you who are in the camp of like, you know, making up your own vows, let me give you some advice here. It's not a declaration of your present feeling about this person. It is a promise. It's a declaration of, of how you feel that you will be tender, that you will be uh, affectionate, that you will be something. It's a future thing. Sometimes when, you know, um, you know, couples will do their vows, you know, at the weddings and stuff, and they'll say, oh, I love you. I care about you. You know, life wasn't the same until I met you. You mean the world to me. Those aren't vows. Those are declarations of present love. To say I love you isn't a vow. To say I will love you is a vow. To say that I'll love you despite the future, despite circumstances, despite our environment, despite how you treat me and despite how I feel about you. This is a vow that I make to you. This is why the love that God has for us is so amazing because he comes to us and he makes a covenant. He makes a promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. That I will love you, not because of you, but actually in spite of you. Romans says that while we were yet sinners, while we gave him no reason to love us, he died for us. We first loved because God first loved us. It's a covenant. It comes from him. All this way, all this, the marriage comes from him and the way we love comes from him. And so at its core... Uh, marriage is, is making a covenant. It's making a promise. And you're, you're not married until you've done this. And when you say, when you make this covenant, when you make this promise, it's a way of actually controlling the future. Um, what I mean by that, I love this quote by Tim Keller. Let me show you this. 
We have this on the screen for you. Tim Keller says, the only way for you to not be controlled by your past is through forgiveness. I want to park there for a second. Some of you are miserable because the past is not in the past. It's in your present. There are relationships, there are circumstances that still live with you. And I'm telling you that forgiveness is the key. You either need to forgive someone or you need to receive forgiveness for something you've done. The past is controlling your present. The way you get through that is through forgiveness. And the only way uh, that you're not to be controlled by your future is through a promise. That's what a covenant is. For better, for worse, for sicker, for poor. I'm not going to let the future, even my own feelings, control what happens here. And that's what marriage is. And this creates this zone of safety that our hearts long for. And we become one. That's key. We, we, we cleave to one another and we become one. And in this context uh, of safety, like we talked about last week, sex becomes this external reality that mirrors something that's going on in the inside. That we're not just, it's not just physical nakedness, but it's whole life nakedness. That we're bare before each other, our deepest desires, our deepest secrets, becoming one person. This is how you can relate to someone at the deepest possible level in marriage. Remember Adam in the garden? Remember um, in the very beginning when he, he sings out this song over his wife? He's like, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. What he was saying there, love you, I am you. We are one. And so in this context, it's like God's saying, like, for, for, for there to be, he's saying to his wife, he's like, for, for us to ever part, for us to ever separate, how could that be? That would be like taking my arm off. That would be like taking my leg off. Because you and I are one. And that is the essence of Marriage. So singles, this is, why, um, this is why you should marry someone who's moving in the same spiritual direction as you are and or a similar faith commitment as you are. Um, being equally yoked isn't some like old school advice from some Bible thumper who's out of touch with reality. This is, this is wisdom because this is, this is what marriage is at its, at its essence is making this promise that I'm going to love you now and into the future. There's nothing that's going to get in the way of that. And you and I are one. You and I will share the deepest secrets. We'll share the deepest joys. We'll share our deepest desires. And we're going to come together in, in, in a oneness. And if that person isn't moving in the same direction as you spiritually, who, who doesn't have a similar faith commitment as you, they're going to look at the center of your life, Jesus Christ, and they'll yawn. Or even worse, laugh. There's no oneness there. There's no friendship there. The marriage is a shell of what it was meant to be. And this is very, very important. The Bible essentially gives no advice on who to look for outside of that little piece of advice. This is a very, very big deal. And it's within this understanding of marriage that we're, we're one that, that Jesus talks about divorce. He says in verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
what therefore God has joined together or fused together, let no man separate. And what Jesus is saying is that divorce can happen, but it's like an amputation. You see, Jesus was speaking into a culture con- cultural context very similar to ours, uh, that where divorce was very, very common. In fact, even more common. We somehow think that, you know, we, we have this kind of weird idea that, that we are this progressive society, that, that society is always, always, always progressing. Historians know that there's nothing new under the sun. It's all cyclical. And the reality is back then, Jesus was speaking into a culture context where divorce was very common. In fact, I would say is even was probably even more common uh, and more accessible than it is today because back then there, were, there was no alimony. And how women were treated um, was like a not, regardless of economic standing, was a notch above a slave. Now, this wasn't just, this was, this was all cult. This was Jewish culture. This was Roman culture. This was Greek culture. And so women were basically, so if, if, if a man could just get rid of a woman who was economically dependent upon a man, could just get rid of a woman, no recourse, no alimony, no nothing, anytime you wanted. And, um, and that's why his disciples, like his followers, the people who were like the closest thing to Jesus were like, whoa, whoa time out a second. Well, who should marry? If you're saying marriage is that big of a deal, who should even, I mean, this sounds, this is, a, this is crazy. I mean, what, what, you know, who, who would have that kind of, who would make that kind of commitment if they didn't have like a get out of jail free clause? You're, you're kind of going overboard here, Jesus. And this is not the disciples in Matthew 1. This is Matthew 19. They've cast out demons. They've done all kinds of stuff. And they're saying, wait a minute. Col- divorce was so, like, prevalent. Like, they're like, this is crazy. We shouldn't even bother. It was, a, it was just as common, or I would say more common, than it is today. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me... Yeah, this happens for the hardness of heart, and just because a judge, or just because a court, or just because a priest says this is okay, doesn't mean God does. He says, what, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And so it's in this culture that Jesus was speaking, that his disciples were just, because the disciples are thinking, wait a minute, this, getting married is about getting my needs met, my physical needs, my emotional needs, you know, and if someone doesn't meet my needs anymore, I need to know that I can get out of this. Jesus is like, no, that's not how it works. So divorce being normal is not a progressive idea, it is a regressive idea. It's going backwards. So what Jesus is driving, driving home here is what he wants us to know is that if this is what marriage is, if marriage is coming together and cleaving and making this kind of commitment and this kind of oneness, then divorce isn't like you know, take, you know, changing your clothes. It's like taking your arm off. It's like an amputation. It can happen. There's some reasons why it, it can happen. He's teaching into it. But he, he, and it can be survived, so to say, but it's as radical as, t- as removing an arm or a leg. What God has fused together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That word separate means to disconnect, to detach, to break apart. Uh, and so he's like, divorce is like an amputation. It, you can survive, but don't take it lightly. Any doctor who would just, call, you know, just kind of flippantly you know, 
prescribed amputation, we get run out of town. You go to a doctor, what do you, oh, I think you, you got to amputate it. You, it's just a cold. Well, yeah, I know, you got to amputate it. We, you, you probably want a second opinion. You might, you might want to like check out your options there. You might want to be a little bit more serious about what's going on here. There are 35 million uh, in-hospital patients every year in America, and about a half, less than a half a percent of them receive an amputation. There are over 2 million marriages in the United States. About upwards of 50% of them get the prognosis of amputation. Maybe, just maybe, it's overprescribed. And all Jesus is saying is that, yes, it can happen, but it's a drastic thing that you need to take very, very seriously, and it needs to be a last resort. Sometimes you have to cut off the leg to survive. That is true. That is very true. And you can survive an amputated part of your physical body, and you can survive a divorce, but it's a drastic measure that needs to be handled very, very serious. What's the point? Divorce is a big deal in God's eyes. Marriage is a big deal in God's eyes. He, he's brought people together, and he's designed it to work in a simple way, and we have to understand that. So if you're married and things are troubled, and you feel like divorce is inevitable, I just want you to know, pers- get help, pursue Jesus, look at, because Jesus gave us an example of a kind of love that where we can love people regardless of how people treat us. We really can. He showed us that, that he went to the cross and he died for people who did not love him. He laid down his life for people who did not love him, who didn't make him feel very good. And he loved us in spite of us. Now, you look at his example, and you're like, I just can't live up to that. It's depressing. I mean, just, I know that he, I know that he did, but I don't think that I can. I just want you to know that Jesus never, will, never calls us to anything that he does not plan to equip us to do. Jesus said, love each other just as I have loved you. So the key to loving like this isn't just to see how he loves other people, but to see how he loves you. To allow the gospel to go to the very core of you are, that he just did not die for the sins of the world, but when he was hanging on the cross, he was dying for your sin. And when you take that seed of the gospel and you plant it into your heart every day, day after day, day after day, day after day, day after day, it will produce a harvest of love. And you will have love and love to spare. You'll have excess love. So that when people take from you and take from you, take from you, you're not hitting a deficit, but you're able to love them in spite of how you're treating them. It really is possible. But before I move on, I just want to briefly address those who are uh, divorced, who have been divorced. I want to say this. My hope is that Jubilee would be a place that you would experience love, grace, and restoration and hope. My hope is that, you know, we, we, my hope is that you would not, there wouldn't, you would not feel condemned, but actually that you would be lifted up. Now this, so I don't want this to be a place of condemnation for you, but it may be a place of conviction for you. And I want to explain the difference. Conviction is when God comes and he points on something very specific in your life. And when he does it, it doesn't make you feel great. You don't love it. 
but he highlights something very specific in your life that he wants to remove from you to bring freedom and to bring a good thing in you. It's something very specific. The little girl, when she runs out in the street, I say, stop. And she feels, she starts to cry. And she's not crying over the fact that she almost ran into the street. She's crying because daddy yelled at her. That was conviction coming into her life for a very specific thing. I was not saying, Josie, you are a bad person and I hate you. I was saying quite the opposite. There's something in your life that is hurting you. And I want to bring warning and conviction because I want to take it away so that there's life for you. Conviction comes from God. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and highlights something very specific in your life. Condemnation comes from Satan. And, it, and what condemnation says is your whole person is wrong. It's not just that you've done something wrong, but who you are is wrong. Now here's the trick. The devil, the enemy of our soul, the Bible says, comes along like a roaring lion seeking who can devour. He's, he's clever. He's smarter than you times a million. And what happens... What happens is God comes in and he convicts you about a specific area of your life. Satan trails God and he brings condemnation. So God says, I don't like this in, in your area of life. And Satan comes along and says, you're such a loser. You think you're a Christian? You th Christians don't act like this. You think they're going to accept you? No one's going to accept you. No one's going to love you. God doesn't love you. That's condemnation. And it doesn't come from God. The Bible is very clear that there's now no condemnation for those who come in Christ. Now, here, now here's a problem that you have if you don't respond to conviction over the course of your life. If, you, if God convicts something in your life, highlights something very specific in your life that he wants to address, and you don't handle it, conviction comes, condemnation comes from Satan, not from God. And you, if you don't address it, you never deal with the issue. So now all of a sudden, you're, you don't know the difference between condemnation and conviction. To you, it's all condemnation. So anytime you see somebody's life that, that, that you, know, you admire or whatever, it, 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 it condemns you. It doesn't just convict you, it condemns you. Anytime you hear um, you know, preaching from God's word or you're reading the Bible yourself or someone shares something that's, that's kind of off in your life, you don't receive it as conviction, you receive it as condemnation. You, you receive it that I am wrong and it shatters you. This is not a place where you need to feel condemned. In the presence of God is not a place where condemnation comes. It will be a place of conviction. Thank God for people who yell at us before we run into the street. It, it will bring life and hope and healing. So for those of you who've been divorced... I do not want you to, feel, whatever the reason is, a biblical one or a non-biblical one, I do not want you to feel condemned. You may have something to repent of, but that will only bring grace and freedom in life. But I don't want you to feel condemned. I want you to know that God's grace is, without pulling the punches away from how serious divorce is, I don't want to pull any punches, but not doing that, David, King David in the Bible, he um, spots this woman, Bathsheba, and desires her and has an adulterous affair with her. And 
kills her husband to cover it up. I mean, you talk about like an unbiblical divorce. I mean, this is like, he went 10 for 10 for breaking commandments. He was just like, he, but yet, through this relationship that was all wrong, comes Solomon, who the Lord blessed as the wisest person ever, and through Solomon, Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's ability to restore and extend grace is unbelievable. If I had to preach two messages, the first one would be go on with Jesus, no reserve. It's the way that you'll get the most out of life. The second one would be there's no one outside the reach of God's grace and mercy. So if that's you, I want you to receive that today. If you resist God, he cannot help you. And you'll stay miserable and you'll stay condemned. If you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. If you humble yourself, just grace, just grace. He wants to bring it to you. Maybe you need to do a revive group. Maybe there's some things in your past that you need to address. Okay, let's talk about your favorite subject, and that is being a eunuch, all right? Um, um, that's what you say when you don't have a transition. Um, I had a guy come up to me once and said, I feel like God's called me to be a eunuch. I'm like, I don't really think you know what a eunuch is. And, uh, but basically, for our context today, let me just say this. Basically, what this is talking about, because I don't have time to explain it all, but the, nor the desire, but the, is basically someone who's single. So you're just talking about someone who's in a state of singleness. And uh, what Jesus is doing here is responding to the, to the disciples' reaction to the strong call of marriage and how serious divorce is. And remember, he's, they're like, you know, well, who should get married? I mean, come on. This is like, who can, who can handle that? Who can deal with that? And this is what he says. He says, well, those of who can accept it should accept it. Those who are married should accept that that's what God has for them. And they'll flourish and prosper. Those who are single... If they accept it, they'll flourish and prosper. So how can you be ecstatic in your marriage? You accept that you're married. Profound, I know. How do you prosper as a single person, whether that's permanently or temporarily? You accept it. What does it mean to accept it? It means to say, God, you know, Everything, just as Ecclesiastes says, everything under heaven has a season and a time. You know, you're God, and I accept this. I accept this as your best. It's about trusting him. It's, it's about accepting where he has you in life. That's what's going to determine, can you accept this? Whether you're single, it's a permanent, or if it's temporary, Whatever phase of life that you're in, does it mean that you won't desire to be married? To be married? Does it mean that? I don't think we should pretend that we don't want to be married. If we want to be married, it's a good desire. It's not a bad desire that. You know, I th- there's a lot of women, I think in particular, who just like, okay, I, I thought, you know, they kind of heard this teaching. If I'm just content, if I stay content, then I'll be married. So I'm going to be content so I can be married. And it's like, you know, you know, Father, I, you know, you're enough. You know, where is he? You know, I don't, where, you know, 
I'm content, Father. And just, it's like, no, don't pretend. I mean, it's okay that you would want this. It doesn't mean that you have to kill the desire. But it's like, I accept where I'm at. I, I still desire this, but I accept where God has me. It's not what I would choose. It's not even what I want. But I'm going to accept it. I'm going to embrace this. And I think the key on whether or not that you can accept this or not has to do with maturity. Ultimately, this comes down to, to trusting God. Do you, are you growing in your trust in God? That's what it means to grow in maturity is you're trusting who God. Let me show you. And I think, this, I think Paul explains this well in uh, 2 Corinthians. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Let me ask you a question. Have you put, a, put away childish thinking when it comes to marriage, sex, dating, those kinds of things? What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we've hammered this, so I won't belabor the point. But you've got to get rid of this right person myth. That comes from Disney. That comes from little kids' books. That if you just find the right person, the story ends and you live happily ever after. It is childish thinking. That, that the, the person of my dreams is here to, to meet my needs. That's childish thinking. Another childish way to think about this is that it's all about you. Kids are like a case study in being self-absorbed. I mean, I'm still waiting for my three-year-old to say, Father, how may I serve you today? <laughs> and I'm not sure that's going to happen. And a childish way for you to think about your season as a single is to think about it's all about you. It's all about your freedom. So you're seeking self-esteem, self-discovery, self, 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 me, 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 childish, childish, childish. And let me just kind of remind you of, uh, of something we talked about last week is that this, if, you're, if, you're, if you're childish as a single, you'll be childish as a married person. You see, the, the, remember, remember the simple believe anything. The, 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 the fool just kind of like thinks it's all going to work out. The wise person pays attention to paths and steps and ways and behaviors and trends. If you're childish as a single person, you'll be childish in your marriage. And you'll think that your spouse is there to meet your needs. But they're not. You are there to meet her needs. You are there to meet his needs. So if you're looking, you're like, oh, I just, you know, I just, you know, I'm, I'm getting older and I, and I got a cat and I live by myself and I just don't want to be that person who has a cat and lives by themselves and, da, da, you know, don't do this to me. You're, you're, you're wanting, in that moment, you're wanting, what you're saying is uh, having a spouse is really about myself. It's about meeting something in me. And that's not how marriage works. Marriage doesn't work when you go into a relationship and take. Marriage works when you go in there and you give and you serve and you lay down your life. That is the mind of Christ. Besides, if I had to give any advice to any gender about who to look for, I would say look for someone who serves. Look for someone who doesn't make it about them. Ladies, if you choose a man, if you fall for a man who does not serve, that doesn't automatically change when they say I do. You, the simple believe anything. 
The wise, the prudent person pays attention to ways and thoughts and behaviors and patterns. And if they're somehow temporar- temporarily making, making you the center, it doesn't last. It just doesn't. And there's a, there's a deeper kind of loneliness than the loneliness of living by yourself. It's a loneliness that you will experience when you're with someone who does not serve you, love you, pursue, pursue you, care for you, and share life with you. I mean, we could just have, like, have testimony hour of women who come up here and tell you about a deeper loneliness than you feel right now. When, men, if you choose a girl who does not like to serve, I got two words for you high maintenance. Yes, but if you find a woman who serves people, because you don't look at how they treat you, you look how they treat other people. Ways, patterns, look at trends, behaviors. They treat other people that way. They're gonna treat you that way. They don't treat other people that way. They're not gonna treat you that way. You find a woman who serves, who loves to serve, who loves to give. Man, that's a rare jewel. It's amazing. It's amazing. Another way, put childish thinking away. Um, is to have patience. It's to have patience. I think, the, I think the two words that my kids hate the most are not now. Not now. I mean, it'd be better off if we just said, no, you can't have this ever. I think that would be better off. But if they know it's something that they can't, so... Can I have some candy? Not now. Can I have play with the iPad? Not now. If they know it's something that they can have and it's okay for them to have, but we delay when they can have it, I mean, it, Dad! Dad! And it's just like, you know, they do that body thing where it's like they weigh 30 pounds, but they make themselves weigh like 200. It's like, ugh. And you just can't like, Dad! And I think there are things, you know, like in life, I think specifically like in this issue of, I want to be married. Not now. Yeah, God. It's just like this immature thing. You know, it's like, we, come on, candy. If you eat candy, you're, you're not going to get any, you're going to be full and you know that's how it's going to play out. And if you, you know, do your iPad all day long, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to be bad. And it's just, you're not going to learn stuff. You're going to become like your dad. And so we just, <laughs> and so just like our heavenly father's like, hey, look, you know, this, I know this is a good desire. It's just not now. It's just not now. I mean, it's just remarkable how every area of life this plays out. Because I talked to about four or five people this week, um, and I was thinking about this message. And, and they all had different things that they wanted. I'm not going to call anyone out, so don't leave if this is you. Just look straight at me, okay? But the, uh. All these different, so like one guy was like, you know, I really want a job. It's a great desire. Why isn't, you know, just wrestling with, why isn't God, why is God saying not now? I don't know. Somebody wanted, um, somebody wanted to be married. Good desire. Not now. Somebody wanted to 
um, wanted to see more miracles and healing in their life. It wasn't happening. I was saying, not now. One person wanted their, their family to read salvation. For whatever reason, God was saying, not now. These are good, if not great, desires. What's my answer? Well, I'm, I'm the three-year-old with you wondering why, you know, God won't give us candy. I don't know. All I know is that he's the only one who's ever created an entire universe, the only one I know of anyway, and he's the only one who died for my sin, so I say give it a second. See what happens. You know, it's interesting. Remember Adam? Again, we keep going back to Adam. And in, in the garden, God comes to him, because this is when we, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's it's a good desire that a man, it's a good thing that a man finds a woman, that a woman finds a man, however you want to. It, this is a good thing. He speaks that to Adam. This is a good desire. He calls it, referees it. So this is a good desire that you have. But yet, he doesn't immediately address the need. Actually, what he does is he brings all the animals in front of him. See all these two by two? Yeah, I, I get the point, God. And then he causes... Adam to go in a deep sleep. He says, you have a desire for a spouse. It's a good desire. But I need you to rest. Now, I had one guy who took this too literally. He's been taking naps ever since. But (laughs) the point here, though, is about trusting the goodness of God. For any season that you're in. For any season you're in. And this is a big, I'm going to take a stab. I don't, I don't really don't know why, especially in your specific situation, if you came up to me afterwards and say, well, can you help me understand why this is happening in my specific situation? I, I, I'm not going to be able to answer that question. But I really want to try because I know this is where a lot of people are. 2 Corinthians 12. Let me just read this for you. This is, this is maybe you can find something in here that will help you. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded. How many times have you pleaded for God to do something in your life? that this should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. I think there are times in our life where we just have a burning desire for something like marriage and we come to God and just like, God, you know, let me, change my circumstance or take this away and da-da-da-da, you know. And God doesn't respond to us the way that we want to respond. And all I know what to say to you today is that his grace is enough, that God wants to teach you about his sufficiency, that he wants to teach you about how much better it is to be in a relationship with him than anyone else. 
to is this passage in Isaiah 55. It says, single barren woman. In a, in a context where having children were everything. Single barren woman, you never have a child. For, for greater is the joy of the desolate woman than the one who has a thousand children. Paraphrased. Why? Because I am going to make you as happy as though you did have all these children, even though you had none. I am going to make you as happy as if you had the man of your dreams, even though you don't. I'm going to make you happier if you had the job of your dreams, the house of your dreams, or whatever of your dreams, times a million. I'm going to show you just how sufficient and amazing I am. So all I have to say to you, if you're in this season where you have good desires that are just being stayed, all I can say to you is God's going to show you how amazing. All I can say in confidence is that you're getting ready to go through a season where God's going to show you how amazing he is. And he's going to meet you in ways that you didn't think were possible. You see, Jesus says things like this in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things that are second, third, fourth, fifth, I know you need them and you're going to have them. But if you, if, you go for, if you make second, third, and fourth, and fifth, number one, you'll mess the whole thing up. If you, if you, if you have candy at three o'clock, you'll mess your dinner up. You'll get candy, but you need to have dinner first. God's going to give you. He, he knows you. He knows you better than you know you. And he really is that good. The series is about, if I can sum it up, this is about trusting the creator of the universe who made you, who designed you, who loves you, who died for you. And he has deeper waters for you to swim, if you will. Trust him in this season of your life.